from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Trump administration will look for a new nominee for the Defense Department's personnel office. The administration named J. David Patterson as nominee for Deputy Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness at the beginning of January. Politico reports Patterson withdrew his name from consideration this week after some columns he wrote in 2017 about immigrant assimilation. The Navy has fielded a new low-yield nuclear warhead. The design is a variant of the W-76-1 warhead used on a Trident missile, designated W-76-2. Defense News reports a low-yield weapon was one of the designs authors of the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review included in their list of proposed new capabilities for the U.S. military. The Air Force's innovation unit, AFWorks, will host four challenges for space-related technology. The challenges will include global space transport and delivery, space asset resiliency, persistent intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, and commercial space partnerships with DOD. NextGov reports AFWorks will host the challenge events March 4th and 5th in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The latest Defense Department audit shows progress in the way the department manages its finances, but there are still lots of ways the agency can improve. Carmen Malone is Deputy it's Assistant Inspector General for Audit, Financial Management and Reporting at the Defense Department Office of Inspector General. Carmen, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. What's the overall lesson or lessons that you've learned from the audit that the department has undertaken so far? So the department is actually making progress, um, incremental progress as of right now. This is the second year that we've done an audit and the second disclaimer of opinion, mm -hmm. um, which was expected. We've also noticed that the department is making corrective actions. They, although you don't see that progress necessarily in this report, as we only closed right around 700 um, NFRs, which are notifications of findings and recommendations, but that is to be expected just because of the process of the audit. Mm -hmm. It's an enormous undertaking, three military branches, fourth estate, and so on. This work is titled Understanding the Results of the Audit, DOD FY19 Financial Statements. What's the basic gist of what people get out of this? So what we want people to get out of this is to understand what the audit entails, mm -hmm. understand what the potential results could be, and understand what that means for the department. We also list 25 what we call material weaknesses, and these are areas that could ultimately prevent the department or the military services um, from getting an audit opinion. So right now, a disclaimer of opinion means the auditors can't obtain any evidence to draw a conclusion on whether the financial statements are accurate or not. Mm -hmm. And so these material weaknesses, as they continue to fix them, will help. 25 material weaknesses, obviously we don't have time to talk about all 25. Are there, some, are there some of these though that are really big and that are really important for the department to wrestle with to, to fix as soon as possible? Absolutely. We actually list six um, specific areas that they really need to focus on. Um, information technology is a huge area and it will probably take the longest to fix. As we all know, information technology isn't something that you create overnight. 
and they definitely need new technology, something that will integrate all of their processes from operations all the way through financial management. The other areas that we focus on are your assets that people will understand, such as inventory, the equipment, their properties, such as buildings and structures. And these are areas that we've seen progress that the department's making and just determining what that baseline is and where their items are. Mm -hmm. So we have seen a lot of progress in that area, but there's still significantly more progress to make. What's, I, what strikes me about reading this work is, is in the area of assets in particular. The stories are not all bad stories where the department had thought it had stuff and turns out it didn't have it. There are a lot of cases where the department finds that it had things that it didn't know it had and that it needed. And so there are there are a lot of savings that I'm that the department's finding in that respect. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. Um, after the first year audit, we, we actually used an example of the Navy mm -hmm. finding a lot of um, inventory that they were able to put back into their supply chain and actually fix aircraft that were waiting on parts. So instead of ordering those parts, they were able to use the ones that they found. There are four elements that you write about in this report about the way forward. What's past is past. What's important at this point is that the department continues to make progress. The first one that you write about is the tone at the top. My impression is that the tone at the top for a long time has been that the audit is very important. How important is it that that tone continues? That's extremely important, and it's even more important that that tone continues to be pushed down to all levels of command. Um, at this point, what we're seeing is the Secretary of Defense, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, they are all highly engaged in this audit. They all understand the importance of this audit, and they are able to talk about its impact on operations. So as long as we can continue to get that tone and push it further down, um, the Navy is another great example of where we saw top leaders go out to the local uh, bases with the auditors, and we saw significant progress in those areas when, when the leadership was involved. Do you have confidence that they're doing all the things they need to do to push that down to make sure that it continues to, to permeate throughout the branches in the fourth estate? I, I think they're doing everything they can at this point. Um, it's, it's a change in mindset for yes. people, and right now, it people are thinking of this as we're going to do something to make the audit go well. And mm -hmm. instead of thinking of that, um, we're starting to see the mindset of we just need to incorporate financial management, internal controls into our everyday operations. And that, once we reach that state, we will actually see significant progress being made. The other kind of future-looking item that you write about that I think locks into that is development of sustainable business practices, doing these things that sustain the audit and that sustain uh, the better operations over and over again. What's your sense of how the department's doing at really uh, embedding those business practices into the way they're doing things? Well, I think that's part of the reason we're not seeing huge amounts of closures of the corrective actions and the NFRs because they are developing sustainable pro processes, which takes a little bit longer to do. Mm -hmm. um, they're also considering how it impacts their operations and how they can incorporate that so people don't have to think of it as, I have to do this for financial management. It's, I have to do this for my job. Mm -hmm. So that's what the department is focusing on, and they need to continue focusing on that. Um, and that's when we're going to start seeing some significant progress. About 30 seconds left, Carmen. What It sounds to me overall like the department is headed in the right direction after all these years 
on this audit situation. Am I reading it right? Yeah, they're heading in the right direction, but it, it's important to note that this is not going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. We're not going to see significant progress in the next year. Um, this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint, so we just need to be patient with the department and hopefully focus on how we can do better. Thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Up next, a new phase in the military's coalition building effort. Straight ahead on Government Matters, prepping the security cooperation workforce. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Defense Department will take a new step in its efforts to build coalitions around the world. It will certify DOD employees for skills in security cooperation. Cara Abercrombie is president of the Defense Security Cooperation University. Cara, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is the security cooperation workforce and why do they need certification and, uh, of their skills? Sure. For, first, I think it's important to define what is security cooperation. Mm -hmm. It's a term of art we use in the Department of Defense to describe all the activities, initiatives we engage in with partner foreign security forces and their institutions. Uh, this is, includes everything from military exercises, training, foreign military sales, humanitarian assistance, those types of engagements. So the workforce is everyone, civilian and military, who supports those functions. Mm -hmm. uh, they number more than 20,000 across the department. They are in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. They are in the military departments, joint staff, geographic combatant commands, and nearly 150 embassies overseas. So it's a large workforce. Mm -hmm. What, what's the process now for certifying their skills, if any, and why is it important to have a construct like the university for them to be able to gain certification? Right. So to date, there has not been a formal certification progress. There have been initiatives over the years recognizing that we'd like to have some common standard for education, but really nothing firmly in place until the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act directed the department and specifically the Defense Security Cooperation Agency to build a certification program. And I think the key phrase that you use there is common standard. I imagine there was a general understanding or philosophy about what these people should be able to do and how they should be able to do it, but not nothing formal. Am I hearing it right? That's correct. As I mentioned, we this workforce spans the entire department. The activities are very diverse. And so what you've had to date is people developing expertise in their niche area. But there wasn't really a recognition that this is a, a department-wide enterprise, that all these different efforts support a larger purpose, which is building the partner capacity, which frankly uh, directly supports the new national defense strategy. I guess not so new now, but the yes. national defense strategy, uh, one of the top three priorities, which is strengthening alliances and building partnerships, and security cooperation is a key tool we use to do that. So the certification program is designed to ensure everyone in this workforce understands how they are united in that effort, how mm -hmm. this is a common uh, initiative, even though we've got sort of separate programs nesting under it. So we're looking to provide them uh, a common sense of purpose, a common professional ethos, an understanding of how their niche capability or effort supports the whole. Five areas of concentration, right. security cooperation, case life cycle management, execution support management, planning oversight and execution management, security cooperation, office operations and management, and acquisition management. I'm heartened as an acquisition nerd to see yeah. that you included that one too. Right. How did you go about choosing those five mm -hmm. as the most important areas of concentration? Sure. So I'm very proud of the work that my team did uh, over the past couple of years surveying the department 
who's in the security cooperation workforce. And once we had a sense uh, of what those different roles and responsibilities were, we knew that while we want to give everyone a common, a basic uh, framework of educational knowledge, we needed to give them more specific job skills training. And how do you do that? We can't give the same training to everyone. So we looked collectively at what were the general themes in the workforce, and we divided it into these five areas of concentration so that as you go up the certification ladder, you'll get more tailored training that's more directly relevant to your your function. And and so this is these are sort of the five large bins. We assess we've got it right. We're willing to accept that perhaps we didn't. And if over time we need to adjust, we're ready to do that. You said uh, that these 20,000 folks will need to be into this by 2020, uh, end of January 2021. What's the, how do they identify themselves or how does someone identify them so mm -hmm. that they know they've got to get on board? Right. So we've asked each of the components. So really at the macro level, it would be the military departments or the defense agencies or field activities to identify their security cooperation positions. There is a little bit of a top down, bottom up dialogue that has to go on. Mm -hmm. They're identified in our database, but more importantly, now that the program's underway, we are asking the components to start coding their positions in the authoritative manpower system. So these will be coded, position descriptions will be changed to say this is a security cooperation position, certification is a requirement of the position. And we think we've come up with a reasonable rollout plan. 2020 is a transition year, mm -hmm. so we want everyone to become familiar with the program. You can start getting certified, but it won't become mandatory until January 2021. Okay. Um, the rollout then for that, what happens after that? Because there's different levels here That's of right. certification. That's right. So depending upon, and right now what we've asked is the community is looking at their uh, their positions. We put out a notional top-down. We think based on your position description, your this position requires you know, for example, intermediate level certification in this area of concentration. We're asking components to validate that right now. So we're using this year to do that. So come January 2020 and likely much earlier, an individual will be able to log on to dsu.mil, click their profile and see what their certification requirements are and then begin taking courses to meet those requirements. Carl, we have less than a minute left. How will you judge at some point in the future that the people who are receiving these certifications actually have the skills that you want them to have mm -hmm. and are implementing them in, in their jobs every day? So we will be performing something of an audit function to look and see uh, are people entering the SC positions, have they met the certification requirements, are they able to meet them within a certain amount of time. We're also going to be doing an assessment of the performance of the workforce, working with uh, the various component owners to see, have you seen a, a discernible change in the speed at which individuals are ready to perform their mission. Thanks very much yeah. for coming on. Thanks it's great to have me. you here. Thanks. Up next, what's keeping the Navy from building up its fleet? Straight ahead on Government Matters, exactly what should be in the 355-ship fleet? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Navy's news force structure assessment won't be ready now until the spring. Acting Navy Secretary Thomas Modley says the Navy's fiscal year 21 request will put the Navy on a path to more than 300 ships 
and there will be a higher growth rate the following year. Mark Kansian is senior advisor in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome back, Mark. It's great to have you back. Why is this FSA so important, and why is this, as you write in this piece in Breaking Defense, along with your colleague Adam Saxton, why is this a missed opportunity? The FSA is a periodic review that the Navy does to set the size of the fleet and the type of ships it will build. And because this is the Navy, that then drives all the other elements of the Navy program, personnel, operations, munitions, and even aircraft. This FSA was particularly important because it was going to incorporate the national defense strategy of the Trump administration, and also because the Navy and the naval community have been talking a lot about distributed operations, smaller combatants, unmanned vessels, and this FSA was thought to uh, include those kinds of new, potentially revolutionary kinds of capabilities. Why does it matter so much that it's delayed a couple of months? What's, what's the difference between if it came out today and if it comes out the end of February or the end of March? There are, there are two problems. The first is that they won't get the results into the FY21 budget, which comes out in about a week. Uh, then. Uh, the Navy has talked about getting it into the 22 budget, but of course there'll be a new administration, there may be a new uh, strategy uh, then. And uh, uh, the second problem is uh, that uh, uh, there may not be a feasible solution. Mm -hmm. That is, the Navy uh, is under some budget constraints, they're locked into the 355 ship target, and the counting methodology is inflexible. In January, there was no feasible solution. There may not be one in the spring. So let's let's take each of those in turn, because you write in this piece very forcefully, trapped by a 355-ship force goal, a reduced budget, and a fixed counting methodology, the Navy can't find a feasible solution to the difficult question of how its forces should be structured. Why is the 355-ship fleet, why is that number uh, a constraint for the Navy in trying to build this out? Under the Obama administration, the Navy's goal was 308 ships. Candidate Trump put a marker out for 350 ships. When Trump won, the Navy did a quick FSA, came up with a 355, which then Trump adopted, and the Congress put into law. The Navy suggested to OMB that maybe 320, 330 ships would be just fine. OMB came back and said, no, the president said 355, the number's 355, so they couldn't get any relief there. So the Navy basically has to figure out where the other 20 or 30 ships come from, and you're arguing that's part of the issue here, that just deciding where to stick those is part of the problem? Well, the other two constraints I think were important also. One constraint was the counting methodology. Mm -hmm. The Navy suggested that maybe they count some smaller ships, maybe they start counting unmanned ships to get to the 355. There the pushback was from the Congress. The Congress has always been suspicious of changes in the counting methodology. They viewed it as a mechanism for cutting the Navy while maintaining the appearance of a, a strong Navy. So they didn't want to change the counting methodology. And then there was the, the budget, which put uh, constraints on Navy also. What do you expect to see when we finally get an FSA? What do you expect to see about the construct, the architecture of the fleet? The numbers are great, and we can debate the, should it be 350 or 355 or 400 or 300? It doesn't matter as much to me, I guess, as it does. What are the 355 ships that the Navy wants, and where can they go, and what can they do? What are the things that you'll watch when this FSA comes out about that, whether it's 
how much they cost or the capability that they have or some combination of both? There are a couple of things that I'll be watching for. One is the unmanned. The Navy in last budget put some unmanned ships into its program to get them out into the fleet and see how they would work. I thought that was a great innovation mm -hmm. without tying it to a large procurement pro uh, program uh, and experimentation. Um, the other one is about smaller combatants. The Navy had talked about distributed operations where instead of investing in a relatively small number of large expensive ships, they would invest in some smaller ships. So to see what, what that might mean, the comment out of the Marine Corps was particularly emphatic saying that for the amphibious ships, he wanted to go to some smaller, more distributed ships. What do you, what does that say about debates that we see on an ongoing basis about what's the future of the carrier fleet look like and those kinds of things? <coughs> 10, 11, 12 is the discussion that that usually revolves around. Does that matter as much in the context of what we're talking about here? Or is that, is that still a really important part of what the FSA will wind up looking like? It would be, except that the Navy just signed a contract for two carriers. So the carrier fleet will probably continue as it is for some time. The Navy tried to retire one carrier early. The Congress pushed back, uh, pointing out that that was a very expensive way to reduce the size of the carrier force. So I think the carrier force, although in theory might be changed, um, will continue as it is. But having said that, I think there could be some major implications for the industrial base. As the Navy goes to smaller ships and maybe some unmanned ships, that will bring in some shipbuilders that previously had not been involved with Navy shipbuilding or maybe even uh, involved in only a relatively small way mm -hmm. because the Navy had been buying very large, very expensive ships. With smaller ships, they might be able to participate so the industrial base might get larger. That's a good thing overall, is it not? It's a good thing for the Navy. Now, it is threatening for some of the existing shipbuilders, and I think they are looking at what they're doing to think about how they might fit in this new environment. Mark Kansian, thanks very much as always. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.